This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. Well, we're talking to you on Saturday because Albion were the Friday night football, um, not for the last time this season. Now the Birmingham City game has been uh, has been moved, which I have to say personally, I'm very, very annoyed about and deeply inconvenient and will prohibit me from going to that particular one. But uh, hey-ho, we're pretty much used to this after the last couple of years. And I think what most are feeling was a pretty good point away at Leeds United. Yes, a Leeds United um, that have a few problems, were missing quite a few players, whether that be Bamford for for, an, for injury reasons or the likes of um, Nonto and Siniesta because they said they didn't want to play or whatever that is. But, you know, it was still a side pretty chock full of Premier League footballers and we went to Leeds United and we ground out what I think at the end of the season will look like a pretty good point although having said that Sky's coverage would make you feel like uh, we were the we were the big dog bullies and uh, we went there and uh, um and uh, and uh, bullied our way to a point against the tiny underdogs the uh, the, the the closing uh, line from um from uh, from Michelle Owen who by the way I have I have a lot of respect for as a uh, as a journalist and uh, and as a presenter but I have to say her closing line was was pretty it was pretty ridiculous um last uh, last night uh, uh, something along the lines of um, uh, 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 th- uh, things aren't going well for Leeds off the pitch, but they've uh, they've managed to match West Brom on it. Well, come on, like if we're talking problems off the pitch, I think we win that one hands down. And they they were not the underdogs. Um, Pete, I'm I'm pretty pleased with that as a point. How do you feel? Yeah, I think um, we can be happy with it. I think before the game, I was kind of thinking that maybe we could go there and get three points because of the issues that they've had with the players. Um, you know, they still 
still lined up with a strong squad for a championship game. Um, so yeah, it wasn't. It's not like we were you know, taking on a really weakened team. Well, a really weak team. It was definitely weakened, but you know the likes of Dan James and Rutter and. Um, Meslier Rodon was playing in Liga last season. Ailings had uh, had uh, well, well over a hundred Premier League games. Um, Ethan Ampadu cost cost a lot of money, as you say. Rutter, um, he, here's one for you. Rutter alone cost more than our entire squad last night, as, <laughs> it, as, as in as in the entire the entire um, playing squad that we had um, uh, that that we that we uh, that we put out as our um, uh, as our um uh, starting 11 and subs so i mean to to consider us any sort of a, or to consider leeds the underdog would be ludicrous yeah and you know ellen rose ellen road is always meant to be a intimidating place to go as a player so yeah i think we could be happy with a draw um when everything settles down and you can you can only assume that leeds will be up towards the top end of the table come the end of the season so a point away from home um at leeds i think yeah we it's a good point. I think it's a good point as well on how the game went, Pete. I mean, overall, you look at the expected goals, they were 1.41 versus uh, uh, 0.75. Um, they, they largely dominated the ball 57% to 43%. I'm well aware possession in the modern game is, is far from, uh, from everything, but you, I mean, you've only got to look at the, you've only got to look at the shots. I mean, they had 16 attempts during the game to, uh, to our four and three of our four came in came in uh, in a in a 6 minute period at the start of the second half so uh, i mean we really didn't threaten them that much during the game we had a flurry at the start of the uh, of the second half and that was about it i mean obviously it's not counting uh, for example furlong's skewed effort wide for, as as a shot so there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of um stuff you could quibble in the data there for example you know there's the, as i say there's a couple of back post balls from Matt Phillips first half which got Albion contacts on which you might say were efforts on goal but the data doesn't count them so maybe we did do a little bit more than the data suggests but not a lot more and i have to say that first half Pete i mean it was interesting because we lined up probably differently to most people would have expected. Matt Phillips came in at left wing back over over Connor Townsend. And I thought we struggled. I thought we really struggled uh, first half. I uh, I thought whether it was Kipre or Yukoslu or any one of a number of players, actually, we were playing the central midfielders into in, into into trouble there was one where Malumbi got his pocket picked and after we got away I think it was the one that ended up hitting the post actually from the deflection and he turned around afterwards and screamed at Yukoslu like why are you giving the, me the ball in there Leeds were really really pressing high on on our on our two uh, defensive midfielders and every time whether it's Kipre was playing the ball in there we obviously didn't really want to go out to the left-hand side, which was a bit surprising because Peters was always open, but that was obviously an avenue that either they'd been instructed not to take or or were choosing not to do so. And I thought we were playing ourselves into trouble a lot first half. And when we got in at half-time at nil-nil, I kind of thought, I can't believe it's only nil-nil. And if the game keeps on like this, there's only going to be one winner. Because the way we were playing our football was just playing ourselves into trouble. I felt like the two defensive midfielders were too close to the two cent- uh, to the, the three centre-halves. And the centre-halves or the deep, deepest-lying midfielder, which obviously is Yukoslu, were not making intelligent choices with their balls out. 
I thought at the start of the second half, when we when we actually started to offer a threat, the big change was that we offered more passes further up the field and there was more dynamism about the passing. We obviously wanted to invite Leeds on. It's something you've highlighted in Corbrand's tactics a lot uh, that he likes to invite the opposition on and, and for the for the defender to step away from them and then play that ball. I thought we started doing that a little bit better. I just thought Kipre started fizzing balls into into midfield much better. And we'll do a little focus on him in, in a minute after we've talked about this this generally because I think I'm going to have to eat a little bit of humble pie on uh, on him because over the last two games, he's just been much, much better than I even thought he was capable of. Um, but just generally speaking, Pete, I think that tactically first half, I I think I don't think Corbran got the, the, the setup wrong. I just think the execution was was wrong and i think we i think we dropped too deep to the point where our midfield was practically on top of our back four uh sorry our back five and we uh, and we resolved that problem second half what do you think yeah i don't think tactically we were too bad um i think we were just really sloppy in different areas um like you say when the ball was being played from the center backs into the the midfield there'd just be a few times where there'd be a poor touch or not really being aware of of where the Leeds player was pressing them from and then just kind of playing their way into trouble. Um, I think that's how Mullenby ended up getting booked. So, yeah, I think it was more down to the players not being as sharp as they can be and should be, um, rather than the tactics being overly wrong. Um, I think we're quite happy for Leeds to have the majority of the ball and then just kind of have our little periods of possession and, and try and just kind of um, create those kind of counter-attack moments where you do bring the opposition on onto you and then kind of play through them quickly. But... Yeah, we didn't really create much or pose much of a threat. But again, I didn't think Leeds were too much of a threat in the first half. Um, And the majority of what the threat they did offer was, and and this is like a broken record thing here, Pete, because we said it after Blackburn, we said it after Swansea, and we'll say it again after Leeds. The majority of the threat they did pose was largely of our own making, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like I say, just the, the kind of sloppy moments from individuals. And yeah, that's when we kind of looked a bit open and, Luckily, we didn't concede from from any of those. Um, but L- luckily, slash, well done, Alex Palmer. Yeah, he had a very good game, didn't he? Um, he seems to just be growing into that into the first choice goalkeeper spot um, and just developing and, and getting better each week. Well, that's two weeks in a row for Alex Palmer. The, um, the, there's, there's, by the way, for anybody who doesn't, uh, who isn't quite as nerdy about the data as as Pete and I are, there's something called post-shot expected goals. What uh, uh, what expected goals measure is a shot from an area how likely that shot would be to go in, but not based on the quality of the shot. So you take take Dan James's shot right? That shot is about 20 yards out. So that would have a low XG because not a lot of shots from from 20 yards go in. But post-shot expected uh, expected goals measures the quality of the actual shot. So after the shot has, hit, it has been hit, it looks at how good is that shot? How likely is that shot itself to go in? And the post-shot expected goal for, for Dan James's effort was 0.57, which basically means six times out of 10, that ball is going to go in the back of the net. And the same was true of Harry Darling's where, where Palmer made a, a save last week that was about 0.57 so again six out of ten times that goes in the back of the net two weeks in a row pete 
Alex Palmer has made a save that six out of ten goalkeepers would let in. That's very impressive. Yeah, it was a brilliant save against Dan James. Um, and he seemed to, he seemed to, well, I don't think he made it better than, made it look better than it was because it was a really brilliant save. But the way he kind of, kind of moved the hand out at the last minute just to tip it over was, yeah, it was incredible. Top and... hand saves just look better, don't they? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, which it's just a, a completely different situation than when, than what we were in last season in terms of goalkeepers. We've got one that seems to be performing, he's in great form and seems to be a very good goalkeeper as well compared to last season when most weeks it felt like we were mostly talking about the goalkeeper So, and for the wrong reasons. Um, and he's, it, But he showed mental strength as well, Pete, because he, he did get some criticism after the Blackburn game, not least from his manager, who, who, who basically said in the post-match press conference that Alex has got to stop that second goal. That, I mean, one of the big things about, I think you said it in, in pre-season about David Button, you said he's not always been this bad a goalkeeper, but he obviously something, the confidence just ebbed away from him. Alex could have crumbled a little bit after Blackburn, but actually he's come back and he's almost used that as as fuel to his fire, hasn't he? The mistake he made on the opening day. Yeah, and I suppose it's credit to Corbran as well to the way that he handled it because, you know, he's got to I imagine you handle it in different ways for different players based on their personality. If he knows that, even if he says, well, basically says that Palmer should have saved it and he says that in an interview, then, you know, some players might take that the complete wrong way and, and then lose confidence and crumble from it. But as you say, Palmer seems to have used that as fuel and, and his performances have been very good since then. As I say, the... Uh, the the real um, standout line when the teams were announced was uh, was Matt Phillips at left wing back. I think we were both we're, we're both big fans of Connor Townsend. Surprised to leave him out. I have uh, I have to say though, on the basis of what we saw, Pete, I think it can be fully justified. I thought Matt Phillips was probably our only real attacking threat in that in that first half. I thought defensively he didn't let the team down at all either. I know there's big questions over him for the second goal. He does lose Luke Ayling. My personal opinion and I have I've been challenged by plenty of people on on this on Twitter um and you know I welcome your thoughts Pete because by no means do I do I think I'm 100% right on this but my personal opinion is that it's Eric Peters' fault that Eric Peters has that ball is his to be won all day long, and and he's got to he's just got to get off the ground to win that header. Yes, Phillips loses his man slightly, but 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 it shouldn't matter if if Peters gets off the ground, he just wins the ball. Simple as. But I thought all things told, even if even if you do make Matt Phillips culpable for that equaliser, nonetheless. A bit like the conversation we had about Connor Townsend on the opening day. A player can make a mistake in a game. It doesn't mean they've had a bad game overall. And I thought Matt Phillips, I thought he was generally pretty good. And I just continue to be impressed by Matt Phillips for as long as he's on the pitch. And this is always the big problem with Matt Phillips. Can he stay fit for long enough? But so far this season, he has been played as a left-sided midfielder on the opening day. He's been played as a striker slash 10 on, uh, uh, for the first home game and then a left wing back against Leeds on Friday night. And to be honest, Pete, 
I, I don't think he's played three completely different positions. I don't think I can really knock his performance in any of them. I would go as far as to say he was our best player on the opening day. I think he did as good a job as he possibly could in that role, which was a bit of a thankless task against Swansea. And then he was our main attacking threat, certainly for 45 minutes against Leeds. Yeah, Mr. Versatile, as the uh, Albion Twitter account have just posted. Um, but yeah, as you say, he's, he's done really well in all his positions. Um, I do think he should have done better with the, the goal that we conceded against Leeds. Um, I'm not sure he's aware that Luke Ayling's making that run inside. Um, he should probably do something to maybe just get a bit closer to Ayling, make a little bit of contact, stop him from being able to make that run. If you were to put it into percentage terms uh, as to what what percent of the blame lies with Phillips and what percent lies with Peters, how would you measure that? Probably something that's tight. Um, maybe about 60, 60, 40, 60 to Phillips and 40% on Peters because I think Peters probably should go and win the header and do better with that. But as the kind of wing back and it's the fullback that's getting into the box, Phillips is it's his man that he's got to... He's got to be a bit more aware of and just do a bit more to stop him from even being able to get that run on Eric I th- Peters. I think I'm the other way around. I think I'm 60 Peters, 40 uh, Phillips. Not least because uh, because Corbran clearly deploys zonal marking. So once once Ailing moves into into Peters's area, he's his man. Yeah, but I don't think it's necessarily just about going to win the ball. I just think he's got to be more aware of Ailing and. Ailing's just got a completely free run. What's he doing? He's like, Dying up a run. He's got no... Phillips can stay a bit tighter to him and just make a little bit of contact and stop him having such a clean run. Then he's not going to have as much power to get up to head the ball, I think. So um, that's where I think Phillips should have done a little bit better rather than actually winning the ball. And But I do think that Peters maybe should have got, got up a bit higher and, and actually won the header. Or got up at all. For that matter, and uh, I think I think one thing we can agree on, though, Pete, is if either one of those two players does their job properly, then that goal doesn't get scored, does it? No, probably not. Like I say, I mean, from a Leeds point of view, it's probably a good goal to score. Um, yeah, um, Luke Ayling just had a a free run on that, didn't he? And it was just a bit too easy from an Albion perspective, I think. Just while we're on the subject of uh, of, of Eric Peters, Pete, I want to linger on on the centre halves. I mean. Eric Peters won zero, zero aerial challenges yesterday. And that's the second game in a row where Eric Peters has been taken off after we have conceded headers in his area of the pitch. I quite like this three centre-halves. I think it suits the players that we've got. But is is that left-sided centre-half still a question. I, I understand why he's going with Peters. He likes a left footer on the left. Is there a possibility that if he's if he's proved that this system works and that Matt Phillips works as a left wing back, that Connor Townsend might actually end up coming in as the left sided centre half? Because I mean, Connor Connor in twenty minutes at the end of that game won two headers, which is two more than Peters won in the whole match. I quite like Peters as a defender. I think he's a steady Eddie. He's not as good at passing the ball as Connor Townsend, and he's not as good in the air as Connor Townsend. And I and I worry with Peters in there that we could get it could be something that teams, especially teams who have a big man out wide or a fullback that likes to get forward, that they could target Peters because it's clearly a problem that he's got, isn't it? Yes, but I don't know if 
Conor Townsend solves the aerial issue. Um, you know, his aerial success rate, aerial jewels one percentage is very high, but, you know, most of the time he spends out in the fullback position challenging wingers for headers. So if you bring him inside to the centre-back position and have, you know, Andy Carroll, for example, coming up against him, then, um, yeah, it's, it, he's not going to look so good in the numbers, I don't think. So I think it would be, I'm, I'm not sure you can say that Townsend's better in the air than Peters. I wouldn't have thought there would be too much in too much between them. So I take I take that on board, but you can't do any worse than zero head headers one. Um, but I, I mean, the obvious solution if you're looking for aerial ability is Carl Bartley. But I just don't think Corbran will do that because he just seems to really like the balance of a left footer on the left side, doesn't he? Yeah, I don't think Bartley solves the issue because, like you say. I imagine Corbran does want that left foot, especially in the left centre-back position. Um, and Bartley's just not as good on the ball as Eric Peters or even if Conor Townsend moved there permanently. Um, yeah, you get a bit better in terms of ending aerially. Um, then you lose out in quite a large way um, with the ability to actually play the ball um, just in terms of passing ability and in terms of the angles that he's going to have to to play those passes when he's playing on well, quite wide out on the left. Um, it just wouldn't be very natural for him. So, yeah, I, I don't think Bartley solves it. I mean, Caleb Taylor spent, I believe he's right foot, but he spent the whole of last season playing as the, the left centre-back, I think, for Cheltenham. So um, he could potentially be an option He doesn't there. seem to be anywhere near at the moment, does he? I mean, he's not He's not even being picked on the bench. No, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, you'd think if he's, if he's that far away, then maybe you'd send him out on loan again and try and get him a bit more experience. But um, obviously, Corbran's got a plan for him. And if we are going to persist with playing three centre-backs, then I suppose you do need a little bit more cover as well. So it's a strange one with Caleb. Whilst on the subject of the centre-halves, um, I'm I'm just slightly indecided as to whether I'm going to have cream or custard with my humble pie, Pete. Cedric Kipre, just so much better in a three. I know, I know. This is like rinse and repeat from last week, but so much better in in a three. You you look at you look at the numbers around him, and I mean, he made six clearances. That's that's twice as many as the next best Albion player. He it, he had um, an eighty two percent pass completion rate, which again so much up from uh, from Blackburn, where he really struggled. By the way, just to give Peters credit, eighty eight percent pass completion rate. I know Peters doesn't really go anywhere with his passes, but he also doesn't pay play us into trouble a lot either. To be honest with you, I I, I just think. Kipre still, I, I'm still between a rock and a hard place with Kipre, Pete. And I, I really invite your thoughts because every time I start talking about Kipre, I seem to sort of like swirl from one position to the to, to another. And I can't, I can't decide quite where I land. On the one hand, I really like the guy. Like, Second half, some of his passing out was dynamic. I think uh, I think back to the, the 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 penalty against Swansea and that brilliant ball through the midfield for for Swift. And I think nobody else, nobody else can do that out of our centre half options. There's only Ke- Cedric Kipre who can offer us that. And I think some of his defending is really really good. Like it's proper, no nonsense. He's a really strong physical presence, but. On the other hand, and this is this is where I end up kind of like almost in a bit of a quandary over it. I think 
okay, he's, he hasn't made mistakes to the extent that he did against Blackburn. But against Swansea, he gives away a stupid corner with an overhit back pass at a point when giving away corners was the last thing we wanted to do. And then against Leeds, it was not a penalty. To be clear, it's not a penalty. He gets enough on the ball. But let's be clear about something else as well. The decision he makes is rash and poor. And he is lucky he gets enough on the ball for that to not be a penalty. He does not need to be kicking through the player there like that. And that's the that's my problem with Cedric Kipre. Because I can watch 89 minutes of the guy and think, he's had a really good game here. But he just seems to have that one one thing that he does every game. And he sometimes gets away with it. He got away with it against Swansea. He got away with it against Leeds. He didn't get away with it against Blackburn. But, I mean, if he could iron that one thing out of his game, he'd be near perfect as a centre-half at this level. And I suppose that maybe explains why he plays for West Bromwich Albion, because he's got that mistake in him. But he's he's got to get that out of his game, that big, big mistake that he seems to have every single week. Because... I think once you get beyond that, and it is hard to get beyond that because it's such a big thing. The guy could cost you a goal every week. But once you get beyond that, there's so much to like, isn't there? He's always keeping the game interesting um, and entertaining. So I suppose that's positive, but I'm not sure that's what you <laughs> that, want. That's, that's one way to look at it. I'll tell you what, mate, that's the most positive spin I can ever, I can ever hear put on a liability. <laughs> <laughs> But he is, yeah, he can be very good on the ball as well. And I guess that's why Corbran likes him so much and is persistent with him. Um, his ability to play the ball forward and pick those passes is, is generally very good, bar the pass that he tried to play at Blackburn um, that led to the goal. So he's got, yeah, there's definitely positives in his game. Um, and the way that we play, I think it's important to have centre-backs that are comfortable with the ball at the feet and can pick the forward passes. With Corbran, we don't just want to kind of go round the opposition and move it forward um, down the wings. He actually wants to play through the middle and to do that you have to have centre-backs that can comfortably pay, play forward and have the, the bravery and confidence to play forward um, into potentially tight areas where if you do lose the ball it's going to cost you. So I can definitely see why he persists with him. Um, but like you say, the defensive side of his game can be a little bit um, erratic at times. Like, yeah, like you said about the, the penalty shout he probably didn't need to go in like that um, and take the you risk. You just swing your leg like that. Most referees is gonna, uh, are going to give a penalty, aren't they? Exactly, and you just don't need to take take the risk of doing it. So, yeah, I suppose that's the thing with him. Um, and it's whether the, the occasional craziness at the back is worth taking the risk of having him play him when you get the you know you get the benefit of his ability on the ball and. It seems like Corbyn it's lack it of is. options, though, as well, to a certain degree, isn't it? I mean, if if I think if we had Dar O'Shea or or Matt Clark, you you're not bothering with Kipre, are you? Because he is a liability at times. But without them, you kind you kind of have to. You can't have a back. You can't have a back three of Ajay, Bartley, and Peters, can you? No, but I don't know whether he'd maybe play him anyway. Even if he if he if we still had Dara, I don't know if maybe Kipre would then move out to the left centre back if we are going to carry on with the the um the back three so it's an interesting one because it does seem like Corbyn rates him quite highly I mean I don't know it's only squad numbers but the fact that he was moved to I think he's number four now it's probably an indication that he was always going to get a fair amount of minutes this season um so it's yeah 
uh, I think Corbin's a fan, and I can kind of see why. Um, but he does also have these moments that give Albion fans a heart attack every game. So that that was that that was what I was going to say, Pete. I, I, to a certain degree, I've kind of warmed to him, but he, the guy should come with a flipping health warning written across his chest, shouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because some of the things he does is just yeah, just crazy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Away days are great. But there's nothing quite like playing at home, especially with Albion's home record and the Carlos Corbran. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Just keeping on with... Uh, well, f- before we actually talk, because uh, I do want to briefly talk about uh, Darnell Furlong, not not least because there's a lovely opportunity to 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 prove that I was right on last week's pod, and you know, you know I don't like to pass those up, but um, just 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 one, um, Pete. I don't know whether you've seen this in the in the data, but if you if you haven't, uh, two players won the most tackles for us against Leeds. Who were they? Um, I've not seen it, so I would. I mean, I'd guess Furlong because you're talking about him and um, Phillips. Yukoslu and John Swift. John Swift, who's apparently lazy. John Swift, who doesn't defend. It's just, it's only a very brief point, Pete, but the misconceptions around him uh, are a little bit staggering, aren't they? Most tackles want the same amount of tackles won as OK Yukoslu, who people hold up as probably the best defensive midfielder in this division. And... John Swift is winning as many tackles in in a game as that, and some of them were important tackles as well. I remember one on, on which was absolutely brilliant, where he came away from it from the edge of our box. I, there, there are such misconceptions around what he is, aren't there? Yeah, um, I mean, I think we've said it for a little while now that he's he's not lazy, and it's he does put the work in. Um, and I don't think Colbert would pick him if he if he actually was lazy. So yeah, the fact that he he got the most tackles. Robin against Swansea. Um, I suppose highlights the against Leeds. Leeds, I'm a week behind. Um, <laughs> against Leeds, yeah. So I guess that highlights that um, he does do the work. And he was well at times. He was playing a little bit of a deeper role than than usual against Leeds. He was kind of dropping into a midfield three. And again, if if Corran was thinking that he wasn't going to put in the work in that in that midfield three, then I'm sure he'd just start with Alex Moa or. Or Chalaba, so um, yeah, it's, it's one of those that it does seem like there is a big misconception around him. Moving on to Darnell Furlong, and <laughs> I spent I spent a, a little portion of of last week's show talking about the fact that Darnell Furlong gets booked too early in games. Nine minutes, nine minutes is all it took against Leeds United. I actually think Darnell Furlong. I mean, he doesn't make a, he doesn't he, after that. 
uh, first of all, I've got a little bit of sympathy. Leeds fans are crying their heart out about the fact that Jason Malumbi didn't uh, didn't get booked more than once. Not quite sure why, because uh, because he hadn't been booked. He didn't make another foul after he'd been booked. So I don't really understand how he could get two bookings. But I think what they mean, what they don't understand that they mean, is that that, that he should have been booked earlier. Um, okay, Darnell Furlong got a booking after nine minutes, and it was it was a bit harsh. But nonetheless, he's given the the the, the referee a decision to make. Notice Sky didn't make a montage about that, but still. Um, but I mean, it's becoming every week now that Darnell Furlong inside the first half an hour of a game gets a booking, Pete. I think he handled it quite well afterwards. He didn't commit another foul in the entire game. But Dan James was comfortably Leeds' biggest threat. And I don't think that's a coincidence that that's the player that Furlong was was largely marking. I've seen people saying, why does Darnell Furlong stand off him for the cross, for the goal? Well, because he can't go and get tight. Because if Dan James nips the ball past him, Furlong has has two choices. One, let him go and he's into the penalty area. Or two, bring him down and be sent off. That's why he doesn't get tight. And and in the end, I mean, there are other factors, as we've already talked about. You know, Phillips and Peters should do better uh, once the cross comes in. But the fact the cross comes in, for me, is moderately symptomatic of... Of, of Darnell Furlong being on a yellow, a little bit of rinse and repeat here, Pete. But again, it is it, it it's a bit like the conversation we just had about Kipre. There's a lot to like about what Darnell Furlong is doing at the moment. He he was a, he was a big attacking threat for us. Um, he he got he got forward in that first half. He got on the end of a couple of Matt Phillips crosses and uh, and caused problems for them. He also put three crosses in himself. I think he did. I think he actually did a lot of good in that wing back role, much as he did against Swansea as well. I like him in it, but he can't get booked inside ten minutes. He can't get booked inside the first half an hour, not unless it's one you absolutely have to take. And I think, as I say, do, does he get tighter to Daniel James if 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 he isn't on a yellow card? We'll never know, but you could certainly make a case that he might. It's always the risk when you get get an early booking is that you just can't do defenders you probably want to for the rest of the game, and it does impact the the decisions that you make when wingers are trying to stand you up. So yeah, again, it's it's something that we've spoken about quite a lot in the past before with Jason Malumbi and recently with, with Furlong, and yeah, we've got to be a bit more savvy with how and when we're getting our bookings. I think Furlong was away from his booking; he was really useful in in what he offered. He received ten. 10 progressive passes most were from long balls but that's kind of where his strength is as well that he's very good in the air in comparison to the people that he usually comes up against again if he was coming up against six foot four center backs then he might not look as good but being on the touchline on the sideline he um he wins a lot of headers and was a target for us for when we were looking to go along from palmer um and also just for for general switches from the left hand side um Furlong kind of held the width and the height and was an option to to move it quickly over there. Um, so I thought I thought he did have a good game. Um, 
He's strong and composed as well, isn't he, Pete? There was one. There was one towards the end of the game where they played the ball down the line for um, for Dan James, and he's just got his body across James, and he's just shepherded it out for a goal kick. And it's not the first time I've seen Furlong do things like that. As I say, there's a lot to like. Yeah, and I think he's very experienced now, um, especially in the championship. You know, he's he's been with us and playing for us for probably he's probably got I wouldn't know, but two, three, three championship seasons, and maybe a Premier League one in there as well. So. Yeah, he's he's been in the Albion squad well, this, for a yeah, while. Yeah, this will be his fourth championship season, won't it? Yeah, so kind of kind of built up quite a lot of experience, and I think it does it is showing. I think he's probably more composed and yeah, just a bit more relaxed on the ball than when we first got him. Um, and he's starting to look, look a bit more like a, a senior, not a senior player, but a, a player. Yeah, a player that's got experience um, and isn't just kind of new to to the the game and the level. Um, but, but then why does he keep getting these naive yellows? Well, that's the issue, isn't it? That he does keep getting these. Um, yeah, I don't really know why, but it is something that you'll need to sort out because, like we've been discussing, when you've got that early yellow, it impacts how you can defend for the rest of the game. Do you think that's part of why Dan James was such a massive threat? I mean, the other side of it, of course, is that Dan James is just a very, very good player at this level and probably shouldn't be playing in the championship. But is... Is that part of why he was such a threat against Leeds uh, for Leeds um, on Friday? It probably plays a role in it. Um, I suppose the other thing is that he's so quick that it must be really difficult to to defend against him when you are on the booking because you know you know that he can just if you give him space to run into, then he'll he's just going to be gone. So he's the kind of player that you want to get tight to and and make a bit of contact and and stop him having an easy run because you know once he gets going, he's you're not going to catch him. And probably one that you, you like to leave a couple of fouls on, but when you when you got the yellow card, you, you just can't take that risk. So yeah, it, it probably is part of the reason that that he looks the threat. Um, and like you say, he is a very good player for this level anyway. So I mean, the other end there wasn't quite as much threat. It has to be said, as I say, Albion only four shots uh, d- during the course of the game. Although, like I say, quirks of the data, some of the some of the fizzed crosses in um, which which were met don't count as um, don't count as as shots. But um, I mean, uh, Jed Wallace and Brandon Thomas Asante. I mean, Jed in particular coming in for a bit of stick. I personally don't really understand that. Um, but Jed and Brandon were not as involved in the game as I think we would like. Combined, the two of them had 46 touches of the ball. Now, that's 10 touches less than Dan James had on his own. Jed Wallace had a very good pass completion rate, 91%, but then I have to put that into into perspective. because So when he was given the ball, he used it wisely, but I have to put that into perspective. He only made 11 passes. His average per game last season for passes made was 27.5. So he's way under half his average from uh, from last season. I have two questions really around these two players because we'll cover Jed quite quickly because it's largely the same sort of conversation we had last week. I... I think Jed is struggling in this system to find his place in it. That being said, we probably sit here and have a completely different conversation about Jed Wallace if Melier doesn't pull off a world-class save to uh, to save a wonderful outside-of-the-foot effort from Jed, which we then scored from the corner, consequently. So I think people are forgetting the fact that goals completely influence the way people look at games. And if Jed Wallace's shot goes in, which, again very high post-shot expected goals. Most goalkeepers don't save that. So 
if that shot goes in, you talk about Jed Wallace's performance in a completely different way, when in actual fact, he's done exactly the same things. It's just in one parallel universe, the goalkeeper doesn't save the shot and in another he does. So Jed Wallace does the same things and you have different conversations about his performance. That's unfortunately the nature of football. But overall, Pete, I just worry when I see Jed Wallace on 28 touches and 11 passes in a game, it doesn't seem enough to me. And Brandon Thomas Sasante on 18 touches. Um, So, as I say, alongside Jed, my question to you around Brandon is, do we need, in DK's absence, a target man centre forward before this window closes? Because Brandon does seem to struggle in games like that one where he's isolated up front, it doesn't seem like a role that's going to particularly suit him. So I suppose the two questions there are, uh, can Brandon play that role slash do we need a target man centre forward? And is Jed really suited to the system? Well, with, with Jed, he, he didn't get into the game too much. Um, if you look at where he received the ball, um, it did help us kind of build up down the right-hand side. He had four progressive passes received. And I suppose that's, kind of the, well, yeah, he didn't do much else in terms of possession, like you say. Um, he only attempted 13 passes, you know, and he generated 0.006 expected threat, which is next to nothing. Um, Blimey, so he... Pete, th- th- there's there's a lot of Lot a lot of noughts in there. That's like uh, that. That was uh, that was like uh, listening to Bill Gates's bank balance. The amount of noughts you were throwing in there. <laughs> and I think he he was actually the lowest in the whole of the Albion starting eleven, um, which is quite a surprise because usually you'll be up there with one of the highest. Um, so he struggled to to get on the ball and move it into to threatening areas. Um, and he, well, like you say with. Brandon Thomas Sante was very isolated. None of our players exchanged um, more than five passes with him. So if you look at the passing network, there's no connections to him. So you, that just kind of shows how isolated he was up there. Um, Who'd you put that on, Pete? Is that is that the players not finding him, or is it Brandon not being a good enough target? It's probably a bit of both, and just the way that we were um, the way that we were playing. We weren't Thomas Sante. We kind of looking to. Maybe not use him too much in build-up, but get him into situations where he's isolated against a defender and then get the ball to him and see what he can do like 1v1 against a player. It's not like we want him to play as a, a false nine or anything like that where he's going to be integral to to the actual build-up play. It's more get him in, into situations where have a go at somebody or see if he can outrun them and and then use him. Um, and hopefully he'll be there in the box when we've, when we've moved up the pitch and can start putting balls into the box or look for cutbacks and stuff. So I think it is, in a way, down to the system more than maybe the players. But then if you did have somebody that was stronger as a target man, you might be more inclined to to use them more often rather than just waiting for the situations where you expect Brandon to to get the best out of a a centre-back if you know that you've got a striker that can receive the ball well, even under challenges and under pressure then you probably do use them a little bit more in build-up. So it's, um, well, it's, it's horses for courses, but I think we probably could do with, well, um, I say we probably could do with another striker, but it depends how Josh Madger settles in. We've not seen enough of him yet to judge on on how he how he can play because... He doesn't the... seem like a back-to-goal back striker, though. I mean, just going on his data, Pete, he, he seems quite similar to Brandon in that he quite liked the ball 
played in behind and he's a bit more of a penalty box sniffer but he doesn't he doesn't seem like he, he's he's going to take the ball back to goal and play others in, in in games where we need it to stick up top no but I think his previous numbers were from previous seasons were kind of hinted at him being quite involved with build up um, I think he had he was quite high in terms of um, passes per 90 in comparison to other strikers and the accuracy of those passes various other passing and creative metrics so it looks like he could be somebody that we're using in build up maybe not just as a target to hit and then play off but somebody that actually gets the ball and, and turns on it and then you looks to use his teammates uh, so I think it will be a different option to, to Brandon Thomas Asante but I don't expect him to be like the, the Andy Carroll type of forward just finishing up with you know it's it, it's odd that we've left left the Albion goal to to the end but we have and but I, that's what I want to finish up talking about. And okay, it was a scrappy goal. Um, okay, it probably if if there was VAR in the championship, it shouldn't have stood. Although I have to say, some of the some of the um, vitriol around the referee's decision to award the goal and the fact that it, the handball wasn't spotted on both Sky and from Leeds fans who've uh, decided to come at me on Twitter and, you know, feel free because I, I, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, you, we got away with one. If that was in the Premier League, then then it would have been disallowed. But we're not in the Premier League. And it was not an easy handball to spot. Not a single Leeds United player appealed for it. So if the Leeds players can't spot it, how are the officials expected to spot it? So I don't think we've got overly lucky. I just think it's one of one of those. Yes, it's hit his hand. Yes, in the Premier League it would have got disallowed, but it was not an easy one to spot. And I think I think nine referees out of ten don't spot that. What I more want to talk about is the corner. Now, I was, I was actually watching the highlights, um, and uh, and uh, you know. Um, Jez is a is a, is a is a mate of mine and love him to pieces. Uh, Jono is is somebody I've met a number of times. Big character, lovely, lovely bloke. Love him too. But I think they assess the corner wrong because they say it's it's a poor ball in. I don't know. I uh, becomes no smoke without fire for me. That's two games in a row where we have where Swift has played a low corner in. It's caused chaos in the penalty area and it's ended up in the back of the net. Now, both times, yes, you will say that Albion have got lucky. One of them, it's pinballed around, hit the goalkeeper on the back of the head and gone in. That's lucky. We're lucky in this one in that it's taken a deflection off Brandon that he doesn't know an awful lot about. It's wrong-footed the goalkeeper. It's gone past him. But to me, to a certain degree, you make your own luck. I spoke about this on last week's pod. We create chaos in the penalty area now from set plays. We did it last week against Swansea. We did it. Uh, we did it this week against Leeds, and we have benefited from it both times. We are. We're not having a lot. A lot of shots on on target. Pete and I were talking about this before the game. We've had eight shots on target. Five of them have gone in the back of the net. We have overscored our expected goals in every game this season. Our XG against Blackburn was 0.8 and we scored one goal. Our XG against Swansea was 1.9 and we scored three goals. And our XG against Leeds was 0.75 and we scored one goal. So uh, so we're overscored our goal, by uh, our XG at this point in the season by over one and a half goals in just three, three games. 
that's not sustainable. It's not going to continue. But what it does show is that if we can create these scrappy moments for ourselves, that especially while we haven't got a clinical finisher in the team and we haven't got that, I think we can really, really benefit from them. We're scoring a lot of goals from set pieces at the moment. No, we're not creating an awful lot from open play. And that is something of a worry. But I think the way that we are benefiting from set plays, and I don't think the two low set, the two, two low corners resulting in goals are any sort of a coincidence. I think they're pre-planned off the training ground. The way they've gone in hasn't been pre-planned. You can't, you'd need to be a clairvoyant to, uh, to pre-plan that, the way that the ball's gone in the back of the net. But the actual ball in is created to cause chaos. How much longer it'll work for if we keep doing it every game, teams surely sooner or later are going to cop none. But for the moment, it's creating chaos. Swift is delivering the ball into a good area and it's bouncing around and it could go absolutely anywhere. And we need that at the moment, Pete, because we aren't creating a lot from open play. We are having to ride our luck a little bit in the sense that um, we're overscoring our expected goals every single week. And until we've got a number nine who can bag regularly for us, I think we need we we need these the, these difference makers these uh, th- these extra few percent and that's what the set plays the the chaotic set plays are giving us isn't it? I think we got quite lucky with the the Leeds one. I think Leeds were actually switched on to it and they had two players sprint out to meet the the low ball, um, but somehow they both managed to to miss it along with Darnell Furlong missing it and then. It obviously bounced through to Malumbi and he took his touch. And Maybe Darnell shot. missing his kick is a tactic as well, Pete, because that's two games in a row he's done that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I think that's quite generous to, to Furlong. Um, but, yeah, I think if... I think Leeds did kind of read it and predict it. Um, and we got quite fortunate that they didn't manage to clear it. But it's something different. Um, and, yeah, it's nice to see that we seem to be working on these routines and and being a bit creative with them rather than just kind of going for the standard ones. Um, yeah, I mean, it, as you say, it caused chaos, and if you can cause chaos in the box, then it, the chaos usually favours the attacking team. So um, we've benefited off, off it for the past two games, um, and hopefully we can continue to do it, whether that be by low low corners um, or just other routines where, well, I'm sure we will, will use high corners again. But yeah, if you can create that, that chaos in there, then then look kind of we usually favor the attacking team i think how concerned are you by the fact that we've got we've got a fairly low xg versus the the actual goals that we're scoring and not that much of that xg seems to be coming from open play i'm not too concerned yet um i think it's probably a bit early to to really look into the numbers and analyze them and and see what they're saying at the minute i think you've got to be just wait a few more games and see how everything settles um the trend at the minute is isn't great but like i say it's very early to look into it and you know we might go out next game and create you know tons of chances and and then the numbers look very different so at the minute it's just a bit too too much of a small sample size and yeah you, you can't really tell whether what we're seeing is is our actual level or whether we've just been poor or good for the first couple of games and it's not really leveled out yet so you know, I think come back to me with that one in, in a few games' time. Lastly, Pete, 
two weeks or just uh, around there or thereabouts, a couple of weeks left of uh, a couple of weeks left of the window. What do you feel we need in what remains of that window? I think I think we're both of the opinion that we expect to see Grady D and Garner leave between now and the end of the uh, end of the window. It's possible Griffiths will leave. Obviously, if he did, we would need another goalkeeper. I don't think that really needs saying um, because we just we just wouldn't have a backup to Alex Palmer. But I mean, working on the basis that probably the one that we really expect to go is Dean Garner. What do you think we need? I'll, I'll give you my thoughts. I mean, at, at the moment, I think I've kind of turned around slightly on, on the centre-back thing. Last week, I was thinking, you know, people were talking about a name like Matt Clark, and I was thinking, yeah, he would transform this defence. But the more the more I watch Kipre, the more I'm prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt, as long as we're in a three. I, I don't ever want to watch Kipre in a two-centre-half position uh, system ever again, because I think he's awful in it. But while there's a three there, I'm happy. Happy is probably a strong word, but I'm prepared to give us the benefit of the doubt that, that Kipre can do a job in that system. I think... We, we we obviously need fullback cover because we've got zero at this moment in time. And I think if we're going to continue with um, with a wingback system, that it would be useful if whoever we bring in is comfortable getting forward. I still think I still think there is there's there's definitely room for a progressive central midfielder, and I'd probably I'd probably like to see a big centre forward as well. I think they're probably the three players that I would be ideally looking for is, is a, a progressive central midfielder, a, a fullback, ideally one that could play either side who, uh, who can also get forward and a target man striker. What about you? Um, I think fullback is, yeah, um, I think that's probably the most important that we need is, is a bit of cover there. If we're going to persist with, Three back three back five. Then I suppose we've got a little bit more covering on the left side now that, and probably on the right side to be fair, because Matt Phillips is going to be. I imagine he'll be covered for both sides, but you can't rely on Matt Phillips to stay fit for the whole season. So um, I do think we need somebody that can cover full back or wing back positions. I'm not sure on about. I'm not sure about midfielder. I think it would be. It would obviously be nice to have a really good a midfielder that's really good on the ball. Um, but we've got so many midfielders at the minute that it just feels like. Got a few too many players in there to be really bringing players in there in the situation that we're in. Yeah, a striker that's a bit of a target man would be quite what if, nice. What if Taylor went out? Would that change your thinking there? Because I think that's also a possibility between now and the end of the window. It might do a little bit, but then we've still got Yakuzlu, Mulumbi, Moet, Chalaber. We've still got four players there. John Swift, if he wants to drop a little bit deeper. So we've still got a fair few players there. And I also don't know how easy it would be to actually fit Kind of midfielder into the starting eleven. I don't think you can drop either Mulumbi or Yakuzlu, so it's it's a bit of a difficult one for me there. Yeah, a target man striker would be quite nice again. Um, it gives us a different, a bit of a variety in how we can actually play. We might be able to start using Jed Wallace a bit wider and, and more in his natural position and putting crosses into the box. You know, we might also be able to to just go a little bit more direct more often into the striker and, and build from there. Uh, so it's yeah, I think. If I if I had to name three, then I would probably go for a fullback, a, a target man striker, and maybe another another winger if Grady goes out just for cover because 
like I say, you can't really rely on Matt Phillips to be fit for the whole season. So a little bit of cover out there would be nice as well. Well, Corbrand did say this week in the press that uh, he expects it could be a crazy end to the window. So we'll see if that materialises over the over the coming days and next couple of weeks. Um, what also could be crazy is where we end up or where Pete ends up recording the pod from uh, in the in the coming weeks because uh, uh, my, my co-host is off travelling. So um, I think you go uh, go Friday, Pete, and um, it could be it could be interesting to see where we end up recording this pod from uh, next Sunday because uh, I, I believe you're likely to be somewhere in, in Spain but quite exactly where and uh, quite exactly the quality of the Wi-Fi you might be able to find could be questionable so I think I think we're going to do a bit of a magical mystery tour each week where's Pete this week yeah I'm, I'm it'll be somewhere in Spain but no plans as to actually where yet so yeah your guess is as good as mine well, if you can do a bit of scouting and find some players, mate, that would uh, whilst you're there, that would be very much appreciated. Uh, God knows Ian Pierce needs all the help he can get, but uh, I, uh, from uh, from myself and uh, from uh, everyone, I'm sure I speak for them who listens to the pod. Um, we wish you safe travels, pal. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Well, we will be back next week to uh, to look back on the Middlesbrough game and also to find out where exactly in the world uh, Pete George is, which is uh, a, a very nice little twist on Where's Wally. So we're, please join us for then. But until then, thanks for listening and up the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is, that's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.